Dignity Justified, Episode 1. Dignity Justified illuminates African-American images, ideas, and individuals. Hi, I'm Anita. And I'm Calvin. In this episode, I'm going to interview Anita to explore her new initiative, Dignity Justified, which promotes the cultural heritage of African-Americans through art, artifacts, images, and individuals. Let's get started. Anita, how are you doing today? Doing just fine. How are you? I am excited about sharing the Dignity Justified story. Let's start at the beginning. What prompted you to begin the journey of discovery of African-American history, artifacts, art, and experiences? Well, Calvin, initially I did not set off or start a mission to collect. In fact, um, growing up, I didn't collect anything. I had a fondness for antique jewelry. But in terms of gathering artifacts and images, um, I really didn't do that. I do know that when I was younger, in fact, in the fifth grade, I was awarded a book. The name of the book was The History of the Negro in America. And it was written by Langston Hughes, the poet, author Langston Hughes, along with another historian. And it was my first big, hard-covered book. In the house, we had encyclopedias, of course, but in terms of having a big volume of work, that was my first. And it was a language arts award. I remember enjoying poetry and, and short stories. But this book was a pictorial history of the Negro in America. And so obviously there were pictures. And I remember the first picture that, that struck me that just compelled me to kind of look and maybe want to know more was a picture of John Lewis with a Caucasian gentleman, um, John Lewis, former congressman, John Lewis. And John had been beaten. He had been assaulted. And so had the other person, the Caucasian person. And I knew enough about history during that time to know that African-Americans were generally assaulted when they protested or, or tried to to make some change in America. But I didn't understand why that gentleman had been assaulted. Well, later on, you know, um, I knew, learned rather, that it was because they were protesting and trying to integrate um, bus terminals throughout the South and other areas. So they were assaulted for that, assaulted for that reason. I remember seeing the two gentlemen. I remember seeing a smoking bus and it was just so shocking because during that time, everyone had boarded a Greyhound or a Trailway bus going to New York, going to the South or wherever we were trying to travel. I remember so being that on, picture. The, on the Trailway bus. Yes. 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 Where did you go? I went down South. Okay. All right. So that was the first the first picture uh, that really uh, made me think about history and the power of images. You know, you mentioned something interesting with the book uh, authored by Langston Hughes, Anita, because this is the second day of African-American History Month. Yes. And it seems like I recall seeing either yesterday or today. It's Langston Hughes birthday. It's either yesterday or today. So kudos for winning the book and kudos for planting that seed of thought about Langston Hughes, uh, a visionary in so many different ways. So please continue telling us about the journey. Yeah, thank you for that shout out for Langston. I love Langston. And, and uh, of course, 
We all love John Lewis, late Congressman John Lewis, and appreciate all of his works for civil rights. Um, he got in good trouble. Good trouble. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So, Calvin, when I lived in southern Illinois, in that little town, well, the university was there. They had a small mall. And the biggest thing going was a Kmart (laughs) because Kmart had a large TV and little kids would stand in front of the television and dance to Michael Jackson's music. (laughs) So... Uh, it You're wasn't very much a little bit there. I yeah. know. Right. I know. I know. But it was shocking to me because here we had all of these little rural Caucasian boys and girls who were just mesmerized. That goes back. And it's a testament to the power uh, of uh, the media and definitely Michael Jackson as a performer. Uh, but that was the first time I saw a cultural exchange where. Uh, a group of people were mesmerized by an entertainer, an African-American entertainer, the same way in which maybe people were obsessed with the Beatles and and uh, maybe Elvis Presley. But anyway, that's a sidebar issue. Sorry. No so, problem. We're still yes. on this journey. <laughs> we're still on this journey together. Okay. Thank you. So. While in Southern Illinois, I always looked for weekend adventures. You know, I studied hard during the week, but during the weekends, I just needed to get out of town. But I didn't have to leave this particular Saturday because someone had set up a makeshift flea market adjacent to the apartment complex. And so I strolled over and made my rounds going from table to table, looking at different things. I I wasn't interested in anything particular. Again, I just wanted to get out of the, the apartment there. And I came across a table. And the lady had a little figure, and it was an enamel figure that had been painted black, and it was bejeweled. The, the item was no more than an inch long. It was the type of pen that one would use to hold a sweater or just to wear as a brooch. The turban had a faux diamond, perhaps emerald-like gems in the eyes, and it was so gaudy and so different. I picked it up and I asked, what is this? Well, the lady was taken aback and she said, here, you can have it. And I said, no, I I don't want it. No, you can have it. Take it. Please take it. And we just did a tug of war back and forth. And I said, no, I'm just, I just want to know what it is. I'm interested in knowing what it is. Apparently she knew that it was something that African-Americans found offensive. And that's why she wanted to get rid of it and get me to move along. In the end, I did take the item and it turned out Calvin to be a blackamoor. And so blackamoors um, are items that you would see on jewelry, figurines, fountains. They're highly stylized. Generally, they are painted black. Initially, they were ebony, and they were used to demonstrate that blacks are to be servants. And you hear me use black rather than African-Americans because that's what they were called. And during that time, people used the term black extensively. So they were ornamental items, figural items that uh, people used to decorate. Well, there's uh, a, a there's a paradox here, Anita, because I'm familiar with the, the term mm-hmm. Moors. I remember yes. from um, social studies that the Moors were from Africa and from Asia, and they basically conquered a good part of Europe uh, prior to the Middle Ages. And so it's interesting that when you use the term Blackamoor and its significance in terms of being subservient in this culture, where the term Moor really represents uh, a period of 
um, domination and power and achievement in so many different areas in terms of the Moors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yes, you're exactly right. Dominated in terms of controlling a lot of the spices. And uh, a result of that was that Europeans wanted to have another way to trade and obtain spices from from um, India and the Asian market without dealing with with the Moors. Here's the deal, though. In Italy, their argument is that the jewelry represents Venetian princes, that the ornamental items, many of them are produced by a company called Nardi. I think it's N-A-R-D-I. So many of their items, they say, promote the Moors. Um, but that's really not the case when we look at Blackamoor, because the Blackamoors are not ornamental items that represent royalty. You had a princess, um, Princess from Kent, I think, who was seen with a, a, a black and more or more piece of jewelry. And so uh, there was a lot of controversy about that. But what's different about the black and Moors, Calvin, is that the black and Moors, if you watch old movies such as TMC, they are always not representing just as you mentioned, the Moors of North Africa. Instead, they are representing European slavery because the Europeans, as you know, participated greatly extensively in the, in the slave trade. So these are items that are used to hold tables, to hold the glass on tables. They are items uh, used to sit items on. Everything about those moors, uh, in terms of the black moors, project the image of, yes, it is beautiful, it is colorful, uh, sometimes highly gilted, sometimes Use uh, using ebony, but the items always showcase the African-American person or the Blackamoor as a person who is there to provide a service. That moor has to hold a light, hold uh, a glass or something to say, I'm here to serve the European market. And then later on, they were used extensively for jewelry. So it earrings, necklaces, Anything or ornamental to portray that these are people that we are using for the purpose of providing a service. Interesting. Interesting. You you mentioned TMC. I think you meant to say TCM, Turner Classic yes, Movie. Turner Classic. No Thank problem. You. Now, uh, let's transition a little bit, Anita. Uh -huh. So I've heard the term black memorabilia. I've heard the term a black or African-American collectibles, but then I've also mm -hmm. heard the term antiques. Are they the same? Are they different? Okay. So uh, I did get off on the, the black and more story, but uh, I can connect that to what I was doing at the time, Calvin. So I mentioned uh, stopping at that little makeshift flea market, but then once I found that item, I was on a quest. And so I traveled uh, along with a friend, Randy, who was from Southern Illinois, specifically Harrisburg, Illinois. And we started going to neighboring areas, Paducah, Kentucky, Evansville, Indiana. And I virtually, I went to these places looking for um, just any representation of African-Americans. And then when I left Southern Illinois, traveling back home to North Carolina, I would stop in Tennessee and Kentucky. So initially, Calvin, I found these objects that were just gut-wrenching. It was just a hodgepodge of negative imagery. And I thought that they would be perfect items to understand racism and bigotry in this country particularly how racism and bigotry is introduced to children. I had no idea that they were not rare. 
I had no idea that they were produced by the millions, particularly in in China and other areas. Interesting. And then from there, Calvin, I said, okay, if I see all of these biased items, all of these negative items, let's see how many positive artifacts I can I can find that pertain to the the wonderful things in African American culture. And so to answer your question, black memorabilia initially was said to be anything that projected a black person. And when people started collecting black memorabilia, they were interested in items such as sports figures. So if someone found a Hank Aaron baseball card, for example, if someone found something that depicted um, Muhammad Ali, people were so excited about those things. And growing up, many girls could not find African-American dolls. So when one came across those dolls, it was like, yay. For example, I collected uh, Gerber dolls. And I remember having a little show at a genealogy society. And and several of the women said, we didn't even know Gerber had black dolls. So black memorabilia started with people trying to gather those images and and learn about uh, African-Americans through those images, images. But then black memorabilia um, just dominated the market. So initially, Calvin, the negative images were everywhere. So I'm talking about the authentic items. So that's where you find the things that are maybe a hundred years old or older, but the negative items were everywhere. Sheet music on jewelry, as I mentioned with the Blackamores, kitchen and bathroom items, advertisements, anything that one needed in the household, Caucasian people could find an image of, of African-Americans. So black memorabilia, that market was penetrated by a lot of negative things because the actual memorabilia items were so rare and they became extent, expensive because you had uh, many wealthy people collecting. Everyone from Oprah to Whoopi Goldberg, Camille and Bill collected. So individuals like myself could no longer afford the item. So there was a time when I could go into Evansville, Indiana, and with five shops downtown on the left and five shops on the right, I could go in with $300 and come out with little trinkets and treasures that I thought were rare. However, once rich and famous people started collecting, they couldn't be found. And that increased the need for some people to manufacture these racist objects and there's now a large market that has just penetrated um, so that you have another generation of people who are eagerly seeking out and being exposed to all of these horrible, negative, racist images. And the problem, Calvin, is that they don't have an ac- academic background to understand them. They don't have the historical background to understand them. And individuals will pick up something and say, oh, this is cute. And... <laughs> For individuals who understand history or who are sensitive to to offensive items, we wonder what in your mind makes you think that having a, a child perched on an alligator or a crocodile is, is cute. So that's the problem with the black memorabilia that has been penetrated by uh, endless examples of offensive items. And so. So the antiques are things that are, are valuable, things that are culturally uh, significant for individuals, for different ethnic groups. But however, within our um, group and understanding of Black memorabilia, we have so many people who collect the racist things where they can collect the beautiful things. So I said, eventually, I started on this 
mission to collect the seldom seen positive artifacts. And so if people really want to celebrate African-American culture, why not collect the beautiful art that's being produced? Why not collect some of the wonderful figurines that are there? Instead, you have a market penetrated by horrible, horrible images. I hope I answered that question. You did. You did an excellent job. And a, a good segue into when you began this journey, you formed an organization, just uh, mm-hmm. Dignity Justified, uh, here in North Carolina. What did you have in mind as far as the impact on people? You know, people can look at negative images, especially African-Americans, mm-hmm. as well as others, but especially African-Americans, and you know, look at some of the negative Im- images, whatever they may be, and say, you know what, we ne- we just need to destroy these. We just need to take this negative stuff out of the picture, get rid of mm-hmm. it. Um, it's making me mad. It's putting me in a bad place emotionally. So what sort of impact do you hope to have with Dignity Justified's focus? Well, because I think racism is so deeply embedded in society, I hope that the images can be used as teaching tools. I think that negative items should not be promoted. I do not, I do not think that we should just gather everything and say, hey, let's torch this stuff. I don't think it should be reproduced. But a good example, Calvin, would be a, a museum um, that was started from an individual collector, David Pilgrim. And he started with just the items that that he found as offensive. He tells a story that when he came across his first item, he just smashed it. He bought it and he just smashed it. He was just so offended by it. But then he thought about, well, who's producing these items? Why are they being produced? And why is there such a need to have an anti-Black movement? And to me, it says, well, systematically, the goal was to portray African-Americans as subhuman, as as people who were not deserving of dignity. And that's really hard to say, but that's what it really boils down to. So David Pilgrim, he's a part of the Ferris State Racist uh, Museum. The Jim Crow Museum. The Jim Crow Museum, yes. But he he calls them hateful things. And so he just has items from everywhere. So Anything that you can imagine that was being produced to show individuals in a horrible, African-Americans in a horrible light, they're in that museum. But he says that these hateful things should be used as as teaching tools, because sometimes people want to have just the happy history stories. They want to say this happened and this is what we did as a country to promote harmony and to promote other things. They want to talk about the, the culture that's significant and the culture that's only allowing others to feel good. He says that we have to to look at these these items. And so that's my my goal, Calvin. Uh, I want to address the propaganda because it's fixed into American society. It's fixed into memory. It's so fixed into memory that individuals have a difficult time understanding success. So going back to collecting, you you have the 44th president, President Obama, former President Obama, attended Columbia 
Harvard Law School graduate, rather than celebrating that success as most of us were doing, you had the racist memorabilia again. So where individuals, Calvin would say, well, okay, Anita, this stuff was produced from the 1870s to the 1960s. Why, why harp on that? If you don't look at it, and if you don't use those things as teaching tools, one cannot understand why if Obama has a poster and the poster says hope, someone feels the need to have rope instead with a noose around President Obama's neck. So those things, I think those derogatory items that are being re- reproduced and, and imported and sold on the internet, they should be addressed. But to go back to your point, Calvin, the camp is really divided. Uh, the camp is divided. A lot of people say that you have to eradicate it. You have to get rid of these things. But to get rid of them, it doesn't erase the racism in this country. And my point is that if you cannot look at these items and understand racism, then younger generations don't understand why things are happening. Why is it that we have uh, a legacy of the hatred that we have in this country? And my point is these little items, these little hateful things, as Dr. Pilgrim says, will help us to showcase, will help us to discuss and focus on African-American history that is significant, that is positive, opposed to the negative items. And it makes me think too, Calvin, about Baldwin. James Baldwin said, we have to talk about things because young people may not always listen to the older people. They may not always listen to their elders, but they surely do imitate them. And that's what we have. We have generation after generation who understands for whatever reason that they are superior, who understands for whatever reason that uh, they should promote their culture and their culture only. And I say, they understand that and they believe that because of the propaganda that has existed to say that that black people are not deserving. And uh, what, what a profound example you gave Anita with the uh, president Obama scenario, mm -hmm. because even as I was listening, I'm saying to myself, okay, as you alluded to the, the, the racist, really negative stuff is from before is from mm -hmm. the 1700s to 1800s, even the the early 1900s. But to think that, as recent as President Obama's presidency, and of course, he's not in office now, that there would still be people, there would still be entities, corporations that would find a perceived benefit in producing something like that rope rather than hope. Yes. It's, it's yes. just really, 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 really astounding. Now, well, let me say something about that, sure. Calvin, because because a lot of this, a lot of this memorabilia is so ingrained in our culture that. It has pretty much been accepted. For example, Pilgrim says they can't even count. They, they're shocked by how many hateful images have been produced for President Obama. But I want to go back to corporations. So now because of Black Lives Matter, now because of so many people speaking out and seeing what happened, particularly um at the Capitol's footsteps, at the Capitol's doors where people come up and they're, they're saying, well, we'll lynch, we'll take over, we'll do whatever. The insurrection, it is their country. Yes. yes, it is their country. So you had individuals, Rand Paul, who, who believes, well, he has to stall anti-lynching laws. So this hateful mentality, this white supremacy dominates. So going back to the small point, though, the, the small point is that it, it has been a part of our landscape. So Antromama, for example, 
It has been around for 130 years or so. So corporations are now understanding their role in, in promoting this. And so you had the, the Antromama images, you had the in hair tobacco, every single thing that Caucasians used, they could say, we no longer have slavery. However, we still have these negative images. So so you do have people who are now saying, let's look at our role and let's see what we need to do to admit, number one, that we have capitalized on African-Americans and using their body, using their images to sell products. However, we haven't done our part to help the community. So you have uh, other examples where, going back to your burn, Calvin, and let's incinerate all this stuff. You you have uh, magazines that have just beautiful scenery. So you have a sofa, table, you just have a living room setting. And the picture goes on the front cover or it's out in a spread and someone calls and says, do you realize you have a black and more in that picture? And then they apologize. Oh, we didn't realize it was offensive. Oh, oh, we didn't see it. So you have a person, an African-American image that's kneeling, the weight of a table on his shoulder. Sometimes they're holding a table with, with their feet. So these things are in our culture and they are so heavily grained in our culture that individuals believe that racism, here we go with the word pandemic. So we hear that a lot, but a lot of people believe that racism is in our values, it's in American politics. Well, what you just mentioned is obvious. It's in our politics. It's in the thinking. And so because it's, it's systematic, we do have to address it because it's not just about images. It's how African-Americans have been portrayed. Interesting. So we've got about five minutes or so left before I transition to the positive images. We're going to talk about (laughs) Dignity Justified's website. Mm. Before we get to that, though, how would you respond to someone who's listening and who basically has a sentiment of, you know what? They just need to get over it. Uh Okay, so there was racism. Yes, there's still racism. Not everyone's a racist. I'm I'm not a racist. So, mm-hmm. you know, they need to just get over it and move on. We've all had issues. We've all been discriminated against. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to someone thinking like that or actually saying something like that? Well, I would respond first by saying that is such a significant part of our American history that we have to address it. And I will also say the positive images and by understanding history, we understand that people across different social uh, levels, people of all races have sacrificed to demand human dignity for African-Americans. So these stories have to be told and they have to be addressed. Otherwise, they continue, Calvin. So just to mention, Aunt your Mama, every single time you have an African-American female who is propelled into office, there's always this this need to demonize her. For example, you had a mayor in Virginia when when President-elect Biden talked about the possibility of taking um, Kamala and using her, uh, hopefully as his his running mate. The first thing that mayor said was he's looking for uh, another aunt your mama. So, oh my, it, it, yeah. So it's it's this thing that because people have been allowed to do it and say things so long and have been unchecked, um, it it causes a problem. And I'll, I'll tell you something a historian said. He said, well, you know, this this racism thing is is like Dracula. And I, I kind of agree with that. Um, because if you think about a vampire, if you think about a person who's cloaked and covered, yes, it may be a male, but 
It could be a damsel in distress who's pointing at a bird watcher in the park and deciding mm, that that mm, person, mm. that person, uh, is, is bothering them. So these things are there. And there's a, a fluidity between the ideas and the artifacts and perceptions of race. And all it does is to reinforce racism. But Dignity Justified says, let's look at these items. And in addition to looking at them, let's look at how we can promote African-American culture by looking at art and artifacts and helping individuals to understand self, helping them to understand family, helping them to understand community. And by doing that, Calvin, we also understand the 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 country. So what I love about some of the movements is that they're saying we are no longer going to accept this. We're going to call it exactly what it is. You may deny uh, the virus. You may deny these other things, but no longer will we allow our children uh, to be targets. No longer will we allow individuals to deny our dignity. And all of us have to speak up to address that generation after generation, this assault on our, our humanity and our dignity has existed. Well, that's a good segue, Anita, into DignityJustified.com, your website. So when I look at that website, Mm -hmm. I see a lot of positive images. I see uh, the story of uh, Ruby Bridges. I see information about the civil rights movement in Williamston, North Carolina. But what I Mm want to focus on with the few moments Mm -hmm. we have left is the story of the Clotilda. Can you share just a snippet of that story and uh, an upcoming event that will soon be happening? Yes, yes, yes. So the Clotilda story, Calvin, this story, hey, that's a, a, another segment. But just briefly, uh, when I think about the Clotilda, I I always think about what kids learn in school. So you may remember that when, when you were taught about the European exploration, people use the G's. They said, oh, Europeans were looking for gold and they wanted uh, wealth and, and they wanted glory because the older brother generally was going to be uh, the person who inherited everything. So the middle person and the baby brother sometimes sought to to have attention and glory. And they also talked about God and said they were spreading religion. So you had gold, you had glory, you had God. However, I always said what they have to do with a bold G is to talk about greed. So the Clotilda story is a story of greed. Horrible, horrible story. It's a story of captivity and enslavement. And it takes place in Mobile, Alabama. You have a rich plantation owner who bets that he can smuggle Africans into Alabama without federal detection. And this is a problem because you know that slavery does exist in the United States, particularly in the South. Right. But there's an 1808 federal law that bans the importation of slaves into America. But still, you know, he has everything, but he says, I'm going to get some Africans and I'm going to hire a captain. He hires Captain Foster, who had built a schooner. They were the, the faster moving vessels, the faster moving ships. Right. So he does. So he has a swift vessel and he uh, has the, the ship fitted so that he can he can get Africans. He goes with $9,000, well, $9,000 in gold. And so that sounds like a lot of money. And indeed, it's a lot of money. However, it was worth the risk for him because it was worth 20 times that amount in, in Africa. So then here we are again, the value of, of African bodies, the value of African-American bodies in terms of marketing for black memorabilia and for advertisement. So anyway, so the schooner represents the last vessel to transport captured and enslaved Africans into the United States. And this story is so big, it's so significant because it's the first and only 
American slave trade ship that has been located, located in 2018 and confirmed in 2019. The diver and reporter was Ben Rains, but it's just a collaborative effort by the African American History and Culture Museum. It's a collaborative effort by National Geographic, but the important story, Calvin, the important story, and I'm sorry I'm rushing, but I didn't know that I had talk so much earlier, but anyway. You're so doing the, <laughs> fine. We just have a few minutes left, though. Okay. So the important story, the major story also, is that the descendants of that captive passage uh, were eventually emancipated after the Civil War, and they established their very own town that remains today. What did they and call called, They called it Africa Town. Africa Town. They called it Africa Town because once they were, they were, uh, Let's say they regained their freedom because they were already free right. in Africa. So once once they regained their freedom, they asked, oh, well, well, to their former slave masters, can you help us get back to Africa? And so the comments were just ridiculous. No, fool, you, we're not going to, to help you. Yeah, we're not going to help you get back. We, we were good to our slaves. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we seen the good slaves dancing in the field mm-hmm. and, and having a hallelujah good time? And we're supposed to believe that. But anyway, so he says uh, the, the owner of former former owners say, no, we're not going to help you. And they pull their money together. They work together and they establish their own village, their own town. They govern it themselves. And here's here's another remarkable part. They even built a building in case someone came along and they didn't have funds and they didn't have a house. They could stay there for free. So it was such a, a community of, of support. The other story is so many levels to the story, Calvin. The other story is that so many researchers have looked into these descendants. And at first they thought a gentleman, Kazula, that was his African name, but he was his... his uh, Slave name was Kudjo, Kudjo Lewis. Okay. Yeah, Kudjo Lewis. So they thought that he was the the final descendant from the Clotilda, and he was interviewed starting in the 1920s, 1927 or so, by anthropologist, cultural anthropologist and writer Zora Neale Hurston. He had been written about before um, by an Emma Roach. However, Zora filmed him, interviewed him. And so we have his story. And then after that, they found another descendant who's a female and then yet another descendant. So Africatown has a festival and the festival is coordinated by uh, Joycelyn Davis. And they come together to celebrate the descendants and the fact that that town still exists. And so they'll have their annual celebration. But this year, the celebration honored the women. And, and she says, well, the women helped to build the town, too. So we would like to acknowledge them. And they can uh, tune in. It's going to be via Zoom. February the 13th at one o'clock central standard time. Right. Uh, and it's called honoring and celebrating the women of the Clotilda. And the speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Hannah Dirk. She's from the United Kingdom. She has done research on the female descendants. And so she's going to present her findings. But you can go to Dignity Justified. I'm still working on that site. I'm still trying to to get it together. I have a, a lot of help. It's just been so much to do. My nephew, Dwayne, helped me with the business plan, the marketing part. Uh, we have a podcaster from Winston-Salem State University, Byron, who helps. And so go to the website. It's a work in progress, as am I. And if people have 
time. They can donate time if they want to talk about different stories with me. I would gladly help them research and, and invite others to help me. So in a nutshell, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to celebrate and accentuate the contributions of African-Americans. But I'm also trying to hold things up and say, this is what hate looks like. And this is what we're striving to eradicate. Excellent. DignityJustified.com and let me plant the seed of thought with our listeners mm-hmm. that our next episode will actually include an interview with Joyce Lynn Davis the yes. festival coordinator uh, for that festival that's going to happen on February 13th at 1pm Central, 2pm Eastern, a Zoom yes. virtual meeting. So, we're out of time Anita. Thank you so much for your mm-hmm. inspiration, for your information and for your empowering insight. And thank you for the opportunity to interview you. Thank you for your time, Calvin. Bye. Thank you for listening to DignityJustified.com.